Are you a software engineer? Do you have experience with mobile and web development, cloud, Java, or Python? Make an impact at one of the world's most global banks at City and explore open roles at jobs.city.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined by my partner in crime, editor of our blog and maestro of our newsletter, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. So, Ryan, have you ever heard of this thing called Kubernetes? Uh, heard it mentioned a couple times, yeah. Yeah, I think we've written about it on the blog a few times. We may have talked about using or trying to use it in different ways at Stack Overflow. It has become an enormous part of what people work with in the software ecosystem. And we are lucky today to have Craig McLucky, who is one of the co-founders of Kubernetes, on the program. Uh, we're going to chat a little bit about some of the old stuff, but also about a new company he's working on called StackLock, and some of what that's hoping to do in the world of the software supply chain. So, Craig, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So we always ask folks, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar, just give a quick background. How did you get into the world of software and technology? And yeah, what led you to play a role in the creation of something that now is touched by so many developers around the world? Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... It's part of the same story that a lot of the listeners have. I started with, a, in my case, a Commodore 64 when I was a kid. Yeah, and the rest is kind of history. I've always been drawn to technology and computers. Um, I was very privileged to get a job at Microsoft straight out of school. And so um, learned a lot about building software you know, as an individual contributor and later as a manager. But it turns out I'm actually not that good a developer. Like I'd love to be, but I'm just not. But the thing that I, I, I do do reasonably well is help empower other people to produce things. And so... I was always drawn more towards helping and supporting mm. than I was to actually directly executing in a large part because I'm just not that good at coding. And that led me into product management. And I had the opportunity to work at Google. And, you know, I'd been at Microsoft for quite some time. And I was very attracted to this idea of, of cloud native. Like I built a lot of package software. I'd got to experience that. But I felt that the future was really cloud. And uh, the first job I had was this opportunity to work with this guy, Joe Beta, on this thing that became Google Compute Engine, which was obviously um, worked out okay. Google's done really well in the cloud space on the back of that that offering. But just that opportunity to bring more of what we learned while building Compute Engine and the sort of practical capabilities that Google had in, inside the company to the outside world to disrupt was just uh, incredibly tantalizing. And so I've, I felt very privileged to have an opportunity to work with some of the greatest engineers I've ever met on what began Kubernetes. Mm. When the project internally to work on Kubernetes began, what was the mission? Like, was there like, oh, this is the pain point we're solving, or this is the market opportunity we see, or this is the thing all of our engineers are kind of talking about and that they believe we should go this way for this reason? I think it depends on who you ask, right? So I was the business guy. And for me, in some ways, Kubernetes was almost an act of desperation. Like, we'd built Compute Engine, and it was very good technology. We'd built some really cool stuff. Paravirtualized device stack. We'd built a global control plane. We'd built an overlaid network. We'd built this killer block device. Really good tech. But because I'm a business guy, I recognized we just didn't have a rock to market. We, we couldn't sell effectively into enterprise. And that's Whenever you're building a business, there's two sides to it. You know, Technology is important, but but actually making money really matters. <laughs> and so I saw that this opportunity with Kubernetes as a way to effectively intermediate a competition with a technology that I thought we at Google could just run better because our data centers were already built this way. 
And so that was that was my ambition. It was really kind of motivated in the in sort of business sense. If you ask someone like Brendan, who was the creative genius on the project, you know, he would say it was an opportunity to create something really special in the world. If you ask someone like Joe, I think he was he was just desperate to <laughs> work around some of the the structures and the, the things that were holding him back from producing great technology. And he saw open source as this incredible opportunity to just you know bring his talent and wisdom to problem space. So I think everyone had a different cut on it, but for me, it was very business aligned. Hmm. Obviously, you know, Ben joked at the beginning, if I'd heard of Kubernetes, it's become this sort of foundational cloud technology. Why do you think it's taken off so much? I would say there's a couple of reasons. You know, there's the technical reason it's taken off so well, which is I think there never was a principled API that abstracted away infrastructure, right? Like it's it's actually a programmable surface area that lets you take your workload and deploy it into any infrastructure domain. And that just never really existed. There'd been attempts at it, but they'd always been tied to something specific about a specific environment. And no one could really come together and agree on what that looked like. And I think the thing that was kind of novel was, and we were able to do this because I, I didn't need to control that project. No, we didn't need to control it. Google didn't need to control it. It just needed to exist, and we needed to be able to run it better than anyone for us to really succeed. And so the incentives were aligned with building something that became you know, ubiquitous and, and widely used. And I think it became as ubiquitous as it was because we were able to bring in the very best of a lot of different places. You know, Google had a very specific set of skills and you know, not to quote that infamous movie <laughs> that they've built over many years but already contains at a certain scale. Whereas Red had a different set of skills. You know, Microsoft had a different set of skills, like Docker had a different set of skills. And and being able to tap into and unlock this potential where each organization was able to bring their own unique capabilities, the unique perspective. And we were able to create an organization or an entity that was really invested in just the the success of this writ large. We weren't the people that worked on that project early on, I think, didn't identify with the companies they worked for. They identified with the project they were working on. If you'd asked someone like Tim Hawking to do something that was, you know, gonna bring Kubernetes down but lift Google up, he probably would have told you to talk to the hand. Like, you know, he had a very high level of personal integrity. He wanted to produce something very special. I don't know that to be true, but I, I believe that to be true. Same with Brian, same with Brandon, same with Joe, same with Dawn. Any of those early engineers were really invested in the project. Clayton Coleman from Red Hat, same dynamic. And they they cared and they loved it and they they brought everything they had and they produced something beautiful. And it, it didn't belong to anyone. It belonged to the community. And I think that's what made it ubiquitous. So I guess just to catch us up a little before we get into your your latest thing, you worked on Kubernetes and then you left Google in 2016, along with Joe Beta, and you launched something called Heptio. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that was? Yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the things that we observed was a lot of enterprise organizations saw Kubernetes as this gateway to self-reliance, as a way to effectively decouple themselves from the environments that they were working in, that they could legitimately and authentically create a substrate that spanned multiple clouds. And almost every enterprise at the time was trying to figure out what their multi-cloud strategy was. And so we had this idea that if we could step into the space of filling the gap between enterprise organizations and this open source technology, we would be able to create further value in the world. And we did that initially by just helping folks that that had a a self-service Kubernetes program succeed with services and with support capabilities. 
but over time, you know, we also used that to identify where the critical gaps were. Like, hey, it was hard to back up and recover Kubernetes clusters. Hey, setting up something that would operate at internet scale from an ingress control perspective is really hard. Hey, qualifying a Kubernetes environment and making sure that it's upstream conformant was hard. And so we sponsored a series of small projects that each developed a life of their own that filled a very specific gap in the ecosystem. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, depends on which way you look at it, you know, we were only in business for two years. Uh, it became clear that we had this opportunity to join forces with VM, which was really looking to redefine their sort of narrative to achieve relevance in this multi-cloud world. And so I just saw this as an amazing opportunity to join forces with someone like Pat Gelsinger and Ragu and expand the mission you know, very, very quickly. And I, I felt really good about that. We made some good inroads there. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like you said, Kubernetes was this sort of cross-company open source project. And I think a lot of the big technologies that are taking off are these open source projects. Do you think that open source has an advantage to closed source proprietary projects? Well, it depends on when. It does have an advantage at a certain moment, but that advantage tends to thin out later. So the way I think to think about it is it's activation energy and then there's value extraction, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at any commercial entity, the activation energy associated with an open source project is relatively low. It's easier to create an open source project that people pay attention to, that they engage with, that they contribute to, that start to use, and just sort of generate a sort of snowball effect where that, that open source project becomes ubiquitous. So open source represents the most practical and simple path to ubiquity of any of the, the technology types that I've worked on. Uh, it also represents the most formidable challenge from a value extraction perspective. Like if you think about the rake, the proportion of value that you can take out of an ecosystem, mm-hmm. with open source, it's capped because by building an open source, you create an opportunity for someone else to use your R&D investment and, and redeploy it into, into a different context. And you know, I certainly right. see you know, the cloud providers have done an amazing job of this, right? Like the cloud services are fantastically profitable expressions of open source technologies with relatively low internal R&D costs. And so that's the, the challenge associated with it. You know, has open source run its course because, you know, the cloud providers are able to effectively monetize? No, I think it's a very, very important part of the technology landscape. In fact, I think it's probably the basis, the cumulative, you know, sort of open source technology, whether it's has a commercial entity behind it or whether it's just being maintained by, by people that are passionate about the technology represents one of the greatest treasures of humanity. You know, if you look at software, which powers all technology, 80 to 90% of software is just a reconstitution of open source pieces. So it is a formidably critical part of our technology landscape, but it's also an increasingly hard part of the landscape to, to monetize because Unless you have a, a practical SaaS-based service and you are able to establish barriers to entry, you will see other people profiting from your contributions. Right. I mean, I guess like, you know, there's an old saying in, in the world of finance, which is that, you know, it's better to be the market maker than the trader, right? I mean, if you find yourself at the heart of the ecosystem, you know, it seems like there are perhaps benefits to your company, even if they're not purely revenue, right? The amount of talent you can attract and your centrality to the ecosystem. And so all those things provide a lot of value to an organization that succeeds in open source, even as you point out, maybe the the raw revenue is capped or something like that. Look, I mean, let's be clear. There's fantastically successful open source companies out there 
Mm. They continue to be very successful in the space. And like, I'm certainly not done with open source, like very far from it, right? I'm very attracted to this idea of, of community centricity. I think if you want to tackle a really, really big problem, it's probably going to take a village and you're probably not going to be able to do it alone. And open source represents the best collaborative open source, community-centric open source, represents the, the very best possible way to, to tackle things that no single vendor can do. If you look at you know the work that I'm doing with Stacklock right now, my co-founder was the founder of this project called Sigstore, mm-hmm. which is emerging as a critical way to tether an open source package back to its proof of origin, the repository right. that it was, was generated in. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of different vendors may approach this ecosystem and try to solve it for themselves, but they would have failed. Like they would have had something right. that worked in a certain context, but they would never have got that groundswell of support. And I do see something like Sigstore, which is obviously important to us to support. And, you know, that's something that is a pretty key anchor to the work that Stacklock is doing as we tackle the supply chain problem. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have happened if it were not a community-centric open source. So that's something right. we will support, I imagine, indefinitely. Right. We're very yeah. appreciative of the work of Red Hat and Google. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, we'll continue to see where it goes. Yeah, yeah. I think open source always seems like the best middle ground between build versus buy, right? You can buy this thing that solves the problem you want to solve, but you can also contribute to it, make fixes, add features. And you have optionality on the back end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It gives you optionality, which is if you don't like your vendor, you're not locked in. Right. And that really right. matters. My sort of general view here is there's things that have to be open source to achieve adoption. Kubernetes would never have happened if it wasn't open source right. and it wasn't community open source. It just wouldn't have. You know, I think Terraform wouldn't have happened if it wasn't open source. I think HashiCorp did a beautiful job of creating single vendor open source Mm-hmm. A narrative. They were seen as the purveyor of that. If you wanted a commercial version of it, I might you'd work with them. I don't know if, if any of the other versions had much commercial success, but uh, right. anyway. I guess what I would say is like, obviously there have been some big names out there where a huge ecosystem grew up around it. And in fact, in some cases a business, but as you point out, there can also be a struggle, right? Like to, to make Absolutely. that business profitable or to continue to grow it in, in a way. So yeah, the point being there's different approaches to achieve different outcomes. And mm-hmm. You have to accept that the activation energy benefits sometimes mean value extraction deficits on the back end. And it's just a balancing act. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. It is that time of the show. Let's shout out someone who came on Stack Overflow and shared a little knowledge. Congrats to NetCoreFan for being awarded a Lifeboat badge for helping to save a question. I need a workaround to access read-only span inside a function that returns an IE numerable. All right, well, if this question is yours or if you've had this question, we've got an answer for you. As always, I am Ben Popper. You can find me on X at Ben Popper. You can email us with questions or suggestions for the show, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find it at stackoverflow.blog. And you can find me on X at rthordonovan. I'm Craig McClucky, the founder and CEO of Stacklock. You can find me on X at, at cmcluck, at C-M-C-L-U-C-K. And I invite you to come check us out at stacklock.com and, uh, and kick the tires on some of these open source and free-to-use SaaS offerings that we've built. Wonderful. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon.